EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is October 17th, and Sandra Porcar, a visiting researcher at BU, and I talk to author Richard Seymour. Seymour has written for The Guardian, BBC, Al Jazeera, and other media outlets. Uh, I'm Richard Seymour. I've just graduated from the LSE, uh, London School of Economics with a PhD. Uh, I'm an author. Uh, my most recent book is the uh, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. Um, and I've been writing for a few years, written for The Guardian, London Review of Books and various other publications. And apart from that, uh, I'm a socialist and uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, involved in far left fringe activity. So what is the future emerging now in Europe? Uh, the future emerging in Europe is one of crisis and decay and the various pathologies attendant on that. So the crisis I would situate on two levels. First of all, there's the obvious one, the one that we know about, the crisis of capitalism uh, and its various mutations. So you start with the credit crunch, uh, then you have a recession in the general economy, and then it gets transferred into the domain, domain of the state. Um, which is uh, a crisis of uh, uh, sovereign debt. Um, uh, and that then gets transferred onto the population in the form of austerity. So there's various mutations of that crisis. Uh, that acted on uh, an already existing problem or series of problems which had to do with um, uh, the decline of representative democracy. Um, so on a whole series of indices, in almost every industrial democracy in the world, you have... Uh, declining voting turnout, declining party membership, declining party identification. So what you have is a, a, a situation in which um, the representative institutions don't represent, or they're not perceived to represent. So it's very important that um, when that happens, uh, there is a sense of a vacuum uh, in which uh, very marginal forces or previously marginal forces, can suddenly acquire an influence well above and beyond that which um, uh, they had previously and well beyond any real social weight they have in terms of uh, their organized support. That has happened with Podemos, with Syriza, and now with Corbyn. So that's it. I mean, the future is going to be one in which uh, there is going to be various workings out of that crisis, but also, of course, we have to take account of the far right. Um, UKIP in the United Kingdom, uh, the Front National, uh, obviously Golden Dawn, um, and the various anti-refugee movements, anti-Muslim movements uh, that are taking shape across Europe. Um, the, um, the sense in which people feel disenfranchised by the system to some extent is even more important than the uh, economic crisis because um, the the sort of disenfranchisement, political disenfranchisement that people are experiencing um, is the way in which they come to understand the financial crisis as something that has uh, been imposed upon us by these outsiders, these elites that have nothing to do with us. Um, and that is the basis of the support for Trump. It's the basis of the support for the far right in Europe as well. And those tendencies will just continue to play out. 
you kind of answered too many questions we were planning to ask you, but um, I was reading some of your works before this interview, and you were so critical about austerity policies mm -hmm. in general across the world. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on, on that in terms of the European Union and how the European Union was trying to address the crisis within the, I mean, within the Union, mm -hmm. applying harshly these policies? Well, the um, official formal rationale for uh, austerity policies is that by imposing um, this deflationary policy um, you can prove to business uh, that the government is committed to getting the books in order that you can you can be confident that this government uh, is going to create a solid investment climate for you so you don't have to worry about bad you know uh, uh, bad debts or anything like that um, of course, it never works out like that, and never has. Um, so, what one wants to do uh, is to figure out what is it between, on the one hand, ideology, and on the other hand, pragmatism uh, that leads to austerity. You can't say it's just purely ideological, because there's no such thing as a policy that isn't to some degree ideological. There's no way of resolving a crisis that doesn't favour one way of looking at the world as against another or one set of interests as against another. So uh, rather than just say, well, it's ideological as opposed to pragmatic, um, the question is, uh, who is it pragmatic for? And in what way is it ideological? Going back to the origin of these austerity projects, you can trace them back to the um, early to mid-1970s in New York, and of course in Ch uh, Santiago, um, in Chile. Um, and you can see um, that uh, there was an emerging crisis of capitalism, there were uh, declining profitability, there was declining growth, and the financial system um, was uh, in a fragile state. And the uh, governments of the day uh, had got into a considerable amount of debt. So in order to ensure that uh, the crisis would be resolved in a way that was favorable to investors, and not say to public sector trade unionists or African Americans or anybody else like that, they represented the crisis of one of over expenditure, public sector over expenditure. I mean, public sector over expenditure was very tangentially to do with it. Um, and of course, to say over expenditure is a value judgment, over expenditure by what me measure? On whom? Um, but because the banks uh, were owed a lot of money, they had a huge amount of clout. They had, uh, they had controlled markets. And so when New York City decided to deal with its um, debt crisis, it ended up appointing uh, a body uh, that essentially uh, consisted of the mayor, uh, top businesses, and various other technocratic officials who uh, worked out on austerity uh, policy. And that policy was then applied throughout the entirety of the United States. So um, there, was an, a group, there was a group appointed that consisted of uh, leading businessmen, the mayor, and a series of technocrats. And they worked together on a deal that involved reducing public expenditures, uh, blaming the unions, and um, re reshaping the state in a less democratic way. Uh, and essentially, uh, what this, uh, the total 
uh, effect of all these changes was to shift the balance of class forces in favour of those who um, were already dominant um, but were coming to be even more dominant and particularly in favour of financial capital. Uh, that was then unrolled uh, across the United States um, after the Volcker shock. It was then uh, tried out uh, in various Latin American states um, uh, when they went through their debt crisis. Um, and the European um, Union, it was then uh, not yet the European Union, it was the economic community, but um, took an austere turn in the early 1980s under West German leadership, essentially saying social democracy is dead, Keynesian intervention is dead uh, and you know the only way in which we're going to make our economies competitive is to drive down the cost of labour, drive down regulations and the uh, impositions they make on business. But the same rationales were used then as are being used now. There was this idea of so-called expansionary austerity. You cut and then eventually you'll see growth. Now all the research on this shows that when you cut um, public uh, spending the result is quite a significant reduction in growth for the duration and for a short while afterwards. But it's not totally irrational because what happens then is that you get a new phase of growth just on different terms. It changes the balance of power within the society. So uh, these austerity policies were justified in much the same way as um, previous and uh, as, uh, as austerity policies are being justified today, which is the language of expansionary austerity. If you cut public sector spending, growth will start up. So, um, <clears throat> so the formal rationale being expansionary austerity was cited and invoked when George Osborne, when he was shadowed, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, decided to implement austerity policies, invoked the orthodoxy of expansionary austerity, and he cited. Uh, a number of specific high-profile academic papers, one of which uh, was then shown to be based upon serious, grave statistical miscalculations. And this was widely cited in a triumphal way, as if to say, ah, oh, well, the ideology of austerity is dead now. But of course, that's not the way it works, uh, because underlying this, there was uh, an institutionalized ideology, which sometimes people call it neoliberalism, but it's essentially a set of uh, premises about how economy and society should be run. And those premises are fundamentally competitive. The idea that competition is the law of all social and economic life, and it's the job of the state to implement that law and to encourage people to abide in it. And anything else uh, is to be eroded over time. So anything that's solidaristic or collective uh, has to be undermined. And all the institutions of government were used to that. They'd been reformatted on that basis. Civil service bureaucracies were indoctrinated into that. The academia, uh, certainly in the economics uh, side of it, uh, promoted this as an orthodoxy. So when it came to the crisis, nobody knew any other way to respond. This was the only game in town. They certainly weren't going to try and revive Keynesian policies or social democracy. So it made a certain amount of sense. Um, and now we're just seeing where that goes um, and the pathologies that that brings. Leaving from that, uh, what's the future that uh, you, you see, ideally see in, in Europe? 
the, the ideal future. Yeah, the, your idea, ideal Europe. Okay, the ideal Europe. Um, well, almost um, it would be abolished, um, which is to say uh, the institutions of Europe are um, not institutions which I think can be uh, you know, reformed in a way that would serve um, the interests of the majority of people. So I think Europe would have to be rethought. It's too, the whole idea of Europe is too embedded in, uh, first of all, a kind of uh, imperial history, a colonial history. Um, and that sort of comes with uh, the chauvinism and racism that you see when you get fortress Europe policies implemented, where refugees are forced to drown rather than uh, being allowed to enter where they would rather make a deal with Turkey to keep refugee flows out um, than talk to Turkey about its war on the Kurds in the southeast of the country. Um, so there's that side of it. But there's also the fact that the institutions of the European Union have historically uh, been developed around the interests of investors and communities of businesses, the European Business Roundtable. And the in interests of... Um, organized labor, uh, the interests of democracy, uh, of a democratic public, have largely been uh, excluded. And to that extent, the more the European Union develops, the less democratic it becomes, the more centralized, the more authoritarian, and the more it produces these uh, nationalist, populist backlashes uh, in the form of uh, far-right uh, breakthroughs. like the very Brexit decision that we saw. So in the long run, I would think um, the institutions of Europe, what we call Europe, would have to disappear for anything like a real um, uh, a community of Europe uh, to emerge. And if such a thing could emerge, I would suggest that it would have to emerge on the basis of um, almost the inverted um, values of the European Union. In other words, it would have to be one that was um, open uh, to uh, migration. Uh, from beyond its borders, not just free movement within, but from beyond. It would have to be founded on principles that uh, were not to do with markets and competition. Um, whether, whether you think markets have a purpose, um, they don't have to be everything. And we don't have to have a Europe that's predicated on uh, markets ruling everything uh, and on investors and, and so on. So, uh, I mean, ideally, I would think uh, that one would like some sort of federal arrangement of European societies, and that I, I personally would like to see them organised on a socialist basis, in other words, that um, the interests of the majority, the working majority, would come to the fore when we talk about planning, when we talk about investment. So if you're talking about big things like the economic um, crisis, rather than trying to resolve a crisis on the basis of uh, how do we protect the property rights of the minority, uh, it would be more uh, interesting how do we uh, make sure the majority don't suffer uh, from the fallout. Or if you're talking about the ecological crisis, that's something that requires huge planning decisions on a global level. It requires the mobilization of billions, hundreds of billions of pounds globally. Um, and it requires coordination, uh, not just investment, but coordinated investment. I think uh, a, a socialist Europe 
could uh, take a leading role in that. If you can imagine a contrast for a moment, uh, it's quite possible right now that Donald Trump will become the President of the United States. Now that's not the most probable outcome, but it's possible. Uh, if he does, there is a whole series of far-right movements in Europe, some of them close to power, which will take huge inspiration and heart from that. There's also Theresa May's government in London. Theresa May is not herself uh, of a Trumpian background. She's a liberal Tory, but in order to keep power, in order to keep her position, she's pitching well to the right and talking the same language as Trump. Imagine the special relationship, so-called, in which you know London and Washington have always underwritten a global liberal economic and political order. Um, you know, with all all of its problems and dysfunction, sure. But imagine a special relationship organised around the ideas and attitudes of basically middle class radicalism, middle class right, um, very racist, very nationalist, very protectionist. Um, the kind of Europe that you would see come out of that. All the um, malingering uh, undercurrents of the far right would become the dominant currents. Once upon a time there was a global pole star of reaction like this and it was the Hitler regime. Um, uh, the special relationship, armed with the biggest military force the world has ever seen, could in principle become something like that. So it seems to me that um, to reverse that, uh, we need to move in quite a radical opposite direction. Um, so if I could put it in a, a nutshell, I would say we need something like a socialist um, United States of Europe. And what that means in practice is something that I can, I can, we can afford to be open-minded open about because it requires a bit of experimentation. But we have to get to a position whereby that's even on the cards, which of course it isn't at the moment. How can you reach there? How do we get to a place where it's possible to talk about a socialist Europe? Um, right now, it seems such an absurd idea. It's entirely and, and nobody even dares to talk about that within the U.S. Mm -hmm. it's, it seems such an absurd idea. How you? It's it's entirely abstract right now. But um, what I would say is that if you think about the um, way in which Karl Marx and writers in his tradition have tended to think about this. It's in a very anti-utopian way. And I think it's very useful that they've approached it in this way. They don't start off by saying, well, here's a blueprint, and this is what we have to move towards. They start off by saying, here are the crises, here are the problems, here are the dysfunctions, here's the tendencies inherent in capitalism. And if you work with the grain of those tendencies, you can start to build the capacities for socialism in the present. You can't talk about socialism as something that you achieve as a blueprint. It has to be something you start to build as a capacity in the here and now. I think about the things, the inst institutions that Europe has. All the things that are bad about Europe could be inverted. You take the central bank. That's a huge, potentially enormously powerful apparatus. If you weren't using it to create a money supply system and a, a sort of secure a banking system that looked after the rights of investors, you could invest in a green economy. You could invest in uh, uh, training and re-education for millions of people. You could invest in uh, creating an economy that didn't demand uh, of some people massive amounts of work 
out of their daily lives and of others uh, no work at all and just being left on the scrap heap. In other words, you could you could use institutions like this and apparatuses like this um, to change the balance of power in a way that benefited the majority of people. There's one policy that I think um, any radical left government, any socialist government uh, would try to implement if it was serious about getting there. Uh, and that is to nationalise the banks. Um, now, that would be quite popular, I suspect. I suspect most people are just sick to death of the banks. But it's also the most difficult policy on the agenda because the bankers would put up a tremendous amount of resistance and hostility to it. And their allies would too. Uh, so the press would be against it, and business would generally be against it, and quite a lot of the parliamentary, even in even in your own party, would probably put up a resistance to, uh, to it. But if you succeeded, that is a nerve centre of the economy. It's a nerve centre of class power, to be frank. Um, it is where a huge amount of uh, the knowledge that makes the economy run is concentrated. Uh, if you were able to genuinely take that under public and democratic ownership and make it responsive to democratic needs, so rather than having a policy that is basically about, uh, at the moment, uh, ensuring a certain level of unemployment, they used to call it the natural un level of unemployment, I think they call it something else now, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Well, if you can uh, imagine a bank that wasn't about sustaining that, and not about sustaining interest rates that are uh, amenable to that goal, but rather about serving social goals and social purposes, that would fundamentally cha challenge uh, the uh, concentrations of power that exist. And so there's a few ways we can get there. Uh, we can talk about building uh, movements, and we've seen some of these types of movements. The movement that uh, became Podemos, for example, the movement of the squares, uh, the indignados. Uh, we can talk about um, uh, supporting the development of new parties, if that uh, comes on the agenda. Um, and then finally, we can talk about uh, the power of office. I mean, it seems to me that uh, there's uh, a problem, uh, which is that um, we, we can't really decide between these different ways of thinking about power. There's a very traditional way of thinking about power, which is um, you elect somebody and then they do it for you. And that raises a whole series of questions about the nature of elected institutions. Uh, imagine, if you like, Jeremy Corbyn gets elected in the UK on a on not even a particularly radical agenda, but an agenda that is too far to the left for the majority of the press, for the majority of his parliamentary allies, um, supposed allies, and uh, certainly from the opposition, um, immediately that government would become a spotlit enclave. It would be surrounded by hostile forces, and anything that went wrong would be used to lacerate it. And it would have to try to persuade business to invest. It would have to go to business and say, would you please um, start hiring people and investing in the economy uh, because uh, we're going to help you create a new wave of growth. And they're going to say, no, we don't think you are. We think you're implementing anti-business policies, uh, an unfavourable climate for investment, and we're going to withdraw our capital and we're going to invest it somewhere else. Then you get an investment strike and you know it becomes very difficult. So in other words, transitions 
even moderate ones are incredibly difficult and they require something more than just one type of power. They require the convergence of several types of power. I think we need to talk about movement building, party building, and we need to talk about how we work with the state, uh, even when the state is working against us. listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Centre for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.